0: This is episode number 755 with Bo Warren, president of Species X Brewing. Today's episode is brought to you by CloudWolf, the cloud skills platform. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today, we've got a one of a kind episode for you in which we hear about how one of our listeners reached out to me to get my help with creating an innovative beer suggested by AI. That listener, Beau, is the head of brewing at Species X in Columbus, Ohio, where he's using machine learning to brew groundbreaking beer. He has a decade of previous experience working in brewing roles. He is a certified level two Cicerone, meaning certified beer expert. He studied microbiology at the Siebel Institute's Montreal campus, and he has a certificate in data analytics from Ohio State University. He was also a star college football player at Virginia Tech, He was invited to play football professionally with the NFL St. Louis Rams, but opted to focus on beer and AI instead. Today's episode will be of interest to anyone who loves beer or dreams of applying AI to their area of domain expertise, regardless of whether you're already an avid data scientist or an aspiring one. In this episode, Bo details how beer is brewed, how Bo moved from being a listener to this podcast to a collaborator with me on his AI Beer Project, how he wrangled years and years of brewing data to create a super valuable proprietary data set for training machine learning models, how he leveraged his self-taught ML skills to generate beer recipes humans wouldn't conjure up themselves, he talks about the specific Python libraries he used to train his ML models and select the beer recipe that's most likely to be a big hit with beer drinkers, and we uh, reveal... Uh, the name and the style of our first AI beer, as well as when and where you can try it yourself. All right, you ready for this delicious episode? Let's go. Bo, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's so cool to have you here. For people who are watching the YouTube version, they'll see me for the first time ever on the podcast I'm having a beer on air. And there's good reason to be doing that because you're a brewer. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us, tell the audience how we met, Bo. How did this all come about?
1: So I was walking my dog. I remember that specifically. I'm trying to remember, I think it was in like 20, 2022? Maybe it was 2023. And I already had this idea to to really utilize AI and data analytics to create beer. Um so I, I already started on the project. Um, I was listening to episode I forget the episode. I know you'll be able to help me out with this one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was it it was It was the episode about uh, beer. So it was episode with Zach Weinberg on like using ChatGPT for like the layman's guide. So yeah, so I so then the context here is it was definitely, it was early 2023. So that episode came out on January 20th, 2023. It's episode number 646. And in that episode, my friend, Zach Weinberg, he's one of my oldest and dearest friends, him and I had been talking and he was, his mind was so blown about ChatGPT, which at that time was brand new. And he was using it for tons of uh, purposes within his brewery to make it easier to create copy, um, to create marketing materials, uh, to answer questions in an automated way that people might have, particularly on his website. And so, yeah, he came on the show to do this episode. It was a Friday episode on ways that non-programmers, lay people, I guess, could be taking advantage of AI tools like ChatGPT to automate things. And yeah, so I guess that's the episode you're referring to. That was about a year ago, episode 646.
1: Yeah, so uh, I was listening to it. I was like, I'm literally doing that. Like, because I know he mentioned, like, you know, someone should get uh, right. All these feature columns <laughs> together. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was like, right, I'm yeah. literally doing that right now. <laughs> yeah.
0: so. He's like, he's like, here's an idea. Yeah. I think his idea, I think his idea in the episode, if I remember correctly, he said something like, Because at that time GPT 3.5 was trained on everything on the internet, there's tons of brewers who just publish their recipes. Yep. So he was like, you could be using the knowledge embedded in this large language model in order to get recommendations on how to brew a recipe. I don't think it was as specific as what we're going to get to in later in this episode with like, Oh, feature okay. Columns. gotcha. Um, but definitely he talked about the idea of ways you could be using LLMs to generate beer recipe suggestions. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah.
1: No, I think you're right. Um, so, I mean, I was doing something similar, I guess, uh, <laughs> not literally that, um, So I was like, man, I got to reach out to to John. So remember, I hit you up on Twitter, crossing my fingers. And uh, you hit me up and you're like, dude, let's chat. I was like, let's. So, um, yeah, just kind of went from there. And then one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, we're doing a collaboration beer together. And uh, I'll tell you what. it's. I'm really excited how it's it's uh, come out.
0: Yeah, we're gonna do the big reveal later. So to kind of give an overview, we yeah we started working on this collaboration, or we started talking about potentially collaborating a year ago. That picked up in the fall, the northern hemisphere fall of 2023, as you started to get uh, a new brewery together called Species X. I don't know if you if you want to tell us a little bit about at that because that's also people, even our audio only listeners will be able to hear kind of the rich echo of this massive space that you're bringing in. People watching the YouTube version can see this epic background behind you. Um, so yeah, yeah, do you want to tell us about, about Species X Brewing?
1: Yeah, so uh, Species X um, started out in, I think it was 2021, at least the idea came around. And the whole idea was this is before the pandemic started. I had this idea. Uh, I listened to a lot of pod uh, scientific podcasts. So one was about microbiology. They were um, talking about finding the next pathogen. How do we, you know, how do we prepare for the next pathogen? And that was before COVID. That was before COVID. (laughs) And they called it pathogen X. So I was like, I would love to do that. Like, I would love to find the next great organism uh, or species in beer. And that's how I came up with Species X. Now, granted, AI is a little tongue-in-cheek. You know, people say uh, that could become the next species. So I'm kind of taking that um, not, you know, super seriously, but as, you know, part of the brewery. And then the other part of the brewery is all uh, novel um, organism, biological organism focused. So um, genetically modified yeast, uh, force mutated yeast, wild captured yeast, um, spore germinated yeast, you know, just uh, all things biological and novel in nature, at least to um, humans. So um, we have those two separate realms we call the silicon species, uh, or the silicon species uh, is the artificial intelligence ML models that uh, I've created and coded. And then the other is the carbon species. So that's going to be your GMO yeast um, novel biological organisms. So Gosh, yeah. um
0: yeah. So Species X, you've got. You've, I've even seen that on your website when people go to buy beers, which will have will be easier and easier. Right now, it sounds like there's only a couple of beers available at Species X um, at the Species X website, and and those are maybe at the time of recording only available for shipping
1: in Ohio. We do not. So those four beers um, online are collaboration beers. So they're only available at Aslan.
0: Uh, Um, Where you used to work.
1: Yes. Yep. We will have four flagships. So four flagships will be available um, through distribution in Ohio. And then, um, so we have an alternating proprietorship brewery in Virginia that will be brewing um, that uh, for distribution. And then uh, we'll be doing, batches here so little three and a half barrel batches of beer which equate to uh seven like full kegs of beer
0: all right so what you're saying is that at the time of recording there aren't real species x beers brewed at species x that people can yet buy online but it's going to be happening more and more as the brewery opens more and more it's something is just happening so you've been kicking off the species x brewery and the the main thesis that you have as president, and I guess head brewer of species
1: X. Yeah, head brewer. Um, trying to think of all the hats I'm going to be wearing in here. <laughs> I'm the only production, yeah, only production person, pres, president. So, I'm, you know, take care of uh, costs and um, a lot, a lot of all, managing um, all of our uh, employees, um, looking at costs and. P&Ls, that sort of thing. Really exciting stuff.
0: So Um. (laughs) so the thesis there, as president and manager and (laughs) P&L head and production person, all these different hats that you're wearing at Species X, there's two main theses. One of them is that novel biological organisms like GMO yeast can produce interesting beers in a way that, no existing yeast could or no other brewery could. And so you call those your like carbon species? Yeah, correct. Yep. And then you also have your silicon species, which is mostly what we're going to focus on in this episode, or eventually we'll get to focusing on quite a bit. Correct. And yep. so uh, you've written a ton of code. I have was worked, I've seen the code. I haven't worked on it myself. I haven't written any code, but I've reviewed some of your code and kind of, Had some ideas of of ways that you can make changes potentially to uh, data that you're including or um, ways that you could be processing or modeling the data. And so we're going to talk about all of that silicon stuff later in the episode. We're going to talk about how you have been using machine learning in those silicon species to create what could be some of the greatest beers ever and... (laughs) We're even going to get to, I'm going to get to find out on air how our first beer is coming along. So we're going to get to that later in the episode, but first let's talk about beer in general. So you are a certified, literally certified beer expert. So you're something called a Cicerone, which, so people who go to fancy restaurants, they may be aware of the job title sommelier, which is somebody who is a specialist in wine tasting. Um, and the equivalent in the beer world is a Cicerone. And I've only read about this in The Economist. (laughs) So I don't know a huge amount about Cicerones, but I know that you are a level two Cicerone. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Um, And another big credential, other than your many years, you have about a decade of experience working in brewing, but you also studied microbiology at the Siebel Institute in Montreal. So tell us a bit about how somebody becomes as expert at beer as you and what these kinds of certifications like the Cicerone mean and why it would be useful to study microbiology as a brewer.
1: Yeah. So um, obviously I am obsessed with the art of brewing. In addition to the art of brewing, I'm uh, absolutely obsessed with science. So uh, a Cicerone, uh, this was back before I stepped into full-time production mode. I worked at sales for um, several companies. One of these companies allowed us to study to be a Cicerone um, or the, through the Cicerone program uh, and we had a pretty intense two weeks um, studying that. L- level one is certified beer server so you can actually take that online fairly quickly. Um, it, it, it's, still, it's still very hard um, so you definitely need to study for it. Uh, level two is exponentially harder than that so I, I believe from what I remember, it's about a five to six hour test. There's a tasting. A
0: five to six hour test. Do you get to I, get a do you get I a hope I'm right drink? about that.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to remember because it's so long ago. Um, you were drinking at the time. <laughs> um, there was a sensory portion. Uh, which didn't take oh, too much really? time. Yeah, sensory. Okay, portion.
0: so then, so level two is obviously in person. You kind of, it kind of was implied yeah. by you mentioning that level one could be done online, and then yeah. So if there's a sensory portion, then that must be done in person.
1: Yep. Um. um that's cool. And then uh, there's like a three-hour written portion. Uh. So maybe it's more like four to five hours. Um. Yeah, it doesn't matter. We're getting the rough but idea. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So th- that was really hard. I found that there's some off flavors that I just do not have the right threshold for it. So it kept, I had to take the test twice because um, of the <laughs> sensory portion.
0: Oh, so, really? So you yeah. ace the written part, but the sensory part was hard. Data science and machine learning jobs increasingly demand cloud skills, with over 30% of job postings listing cloud skills as a requirement today, and that percentage set to continue growing. Thankfully, Kirill and Atlan, who have taught machine learning to millions of students, have now launched CloudWolf to efficiently provide you with the essential cloud computing skills. With CloudWolf, commit just 30 minutes a day for 30 days and you can obtain your official AWS certification badge. Secure your career's future. Join now at cloudwolf.com SDS for a whopping 30% membership discount. Again, that's cloudwolf.com SDS to start your cloud journey today. And that's, that's amazing because you obviously, you assuming that you did this certification relatively recently, you already would have had a decade of experience, uh, professionally tasting beers. So that really says something about this taste.
1: No, I, uh, I probably had, I was in the industry for probably three years by then. So this is, like I said, this is a, this is pretty far back ago, but I, I just, you know, some people just don't have a really high threshold for things. And I, I don't like One of the, there was like one or two things that I just had struggled picking up. So anyways, uh, and that, so I got that, uh, which was, I was really excited about beyond level two, there's also advanced Cicerone and then there's master Cicerone advanced is also exponentially harder than level two. So, uh, and then after, after advanced Cicerone, that's exponentially harder than that. So I have nothing but the most respect for, for you know, not, not only the people taking level one and two, but seeing how I failed the first time on um, getting Cicerone level two, how hard and dedicated you have to be to uh, achieve advanced Cicerone and yeah. to get... The Master Cicerone, which is I think there's only a handful of people in the world that have Master Cicerone. That
0: must have been what I was reading about in The Economist. It's like dozens of people um worldwide, yeah that. um yeah, that's wild. and so there are there must obviously be some kind of maybe not obviously there there might be, I suspect, a strong like biological component to being able to do this. like my sister, for example, she could just taste way more stuff than me. I've never I've never been a great taster. And I think it's. we actually looked into this growing up. There's like a density of taste receptors on your tongue. And people have different densities. And so you can get like a little, they have these little, they're like the size of like a Cheerio, um, a flat piece of paper that looks like a little Cheerio. You can put that on your tongue and you can count how many taste receptors are in that little Cheerio looking circle thing. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And that gives you a sense of how many, Taste receptors you have on your tongue and some people have way more than others
1: that's fascinating i i did not know about that start yeah. handing those out
0: <laughs> yeah you could. <laughs> you, could. you could look that
1: up um and they definitely it's something
0: you can buy um it could be a kind of an interesting actually if people are coming by and doing a tasting at the brewery you could have these there and because it just t- it just takes like a minute to count um and then it gives you a sense there's like super tasters, which my sister is because she has a crazy number of taste receptors. And I'm like, I can't remember what the word is for <laughs> like a sub taster.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm like deficient.
1: Yeah. Not, it's funny. My wife is the same way. Um,
0: She's a super d- taster.
1: Yeah. Super taster. Right, you'll have to, you'll have uh, to, really to do good. the
0: test to see whether it's uh, experience or biology in her case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cool. Yeah. So that's the Cicerone. And then, yeah, in addition, you studied microbiology. So I guess people, we're going to get into how beers are made uh, in a moment, but I guess people might not appreciate the extent to which uh, brewing beer involves working with living biological organisms. And so a microbiology training can also be a huge asset. Do many people, do you know many other brewers that actually formally study microbiology like you did?
1: I'm trying to I'm trying to think here. Uh, obviously, the, the bigger brewers around are going to uh, send off the right people to go get trained. Obviously, all lab techs, uh, you definitely want some sort of lab training, um, which is prominently why um, Aslan sent me uh, for two weeks in Montreal to go study beer microbiology. Right. Uh, I, was, I was the head of the lab. Um, so I did all the QAQC microbiology checks, all that stuff. Yeah, let's.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll explain a few terms here. So ASLIN yeah. that you've referred to a couple times now in the episode. That's a brewery in Alexandria, Virginia that you worked at for five years. And when you say QAQC, this might actually be obvious to some software people out there because QA is also software mm-hmm. <laughs> engineer. Like it's, it's like a, so- a software engineering kind of specialization. It's so a quality assurance. Uh, so the QAQC is quality assurance and quality control supervisor. You were. Um, and yeah, I see. So, as part of that role, you're spending a lot of time like, are you literally like working with like test tubes and that yeah. kind of thing? To, yeah.
1: Yeah. I was, uh, making, making plates. Um, we had a, a, a nice set of, um, selection for our plates. So, um, like, like, you know, uh, plates for growing like a bacterial culture kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, what I love to do is uh, my, my favorite plate was WLN because it would change colors depending on the yeast strain, uh, the species of yeast, the bacteria, all that stuff. So it made uh, identifying colonies a lot easier. Um, so that was like my go-to general media to if I'm trying to troubleshoot something or if I captured something, I was interested in it. Uh, that was my go-to Um and so then we
0: have when up? would you when would you do that? Like when in the process? Is this like during the brewing process, would you just if something looks unusual, something looks like it's a rye or tastes like it's a rye or smells like it's a rye, or are you just are brewers kind of always doing these kinds of tests, uh, plating um, yeast and bacteria, I guess. Uh, to, it, is this like when does that happen in a beer brewing process?
1: Well, I think ideally, at every single step, Every like so, going into the fermenter, you want to make sure that wort is sterile, and you have a a certain CFU uh, cell forming unit on your plate. And what's the wort? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, wort is like the it's sugary. Like, it's like sugar, water, and hop. It's sugar, water, or it's sugar from the grain. Uh, any hops, if you use, uh, well, yeah. All beer pretty much has hops in it, so hops, um, unfermented beer. I want to say, got so it, very, it. It's, it's, it's like sp- sugar water, essentially. It's spelled W O
0: R T, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's correct. And, and this is what you this is what you start with. So you, as a human, can mix together kind of your first set of ingredients in water. And um, yeah, the the key ingredients in beer, I guess, are barley, malts, hops, and water right? That's typically what you would put in, those kind of four things.
1: Yep, and then people can throw in some adjuncts. So, uh, wheat oats are used a lot in, like, uh, New England IPAs or the hazy IPAs um, to increase mouthfeel. A lot of people use rye for to add, like, a little bit of a, a spicy character, not necessarily in New England IPAs, but um, see it a lot in stouts and stuff. Um, you also see a nice roast, roasted barley for Stouts, Uh, Guinness is well known for uh, using roasted barley. You'll see some other kilned malts to darken the color, but also not add, uh, and they'll caramelize it. So it won't add like a roasty bitterness. It'll actually add like caramel uh, or caramel for some people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. So, So, So
0: all these different things are added together into water. It's kind of like a sugary sweet water And that's called the wort. That's, I guess, the starting point for brewing. And then you add yeast to it to start fermenting the sugar water into alcohol and carbon dioxide.
1: Yeah, we'll, uh, we start on the hot side. So as you mentioned, make that sugar water, boil it for an hour or, you know, some people will do three hours. Um, If you're doing like some super stout or barley wine or longer, and then you um, throw it through a heat exchanger, uh, immediately cool it down to ferment, fermenting uh, temperature, uh, infuse it with oxygen for the yeast, and then pitch the yeast into the wor- into the wort uh, that will be in the uh, sanitary tank or the fermenter.
0: Cool. And yeah, every step of the way, we could be doing like QAQC, uh, looking at how the yeast... Is doing, I guess, and what kinds of bacteria are present. So that, I, that isn't something yeah. I'm really aware of. So, so both of these things are very small organisms.
1: <laughs> um,
0: yeah. And yeast, I know, is the animal that is actively because if I'm remembering correctly, yeast is like the simplest. It's one of the simplest animals. It's a single-celled animal. Um, so it's not a plant. It's not a bacteria. Those are like different kingdoms of yep. uh, animals. Or species. (laughs) Um, And so so this tiny single-celled animal, the yeast, is yeah adept at converting sugar into alcohol and into carbon dioxide. That's how it survives. Um, But why are there bacteria present? It sounds like that's a pretty normal thing. To me, that sounds like potentially an alarming thing. Like you don't want a bunch of bacteria growth in your food, typically.
1: Yeah, you definitely don't um and our processes at Asan were um very good so we didn't we never really saw a, a ton I, got um, you, I got and you. if it, if it was there it was under threshold which is you know barely any but yeah if it's there most of the time you don't want it there some of it it it, it can't tolerate uh alcohol or or hops right so right. what'll happen is you'll see it pop up on a plate and you know it's not going to be able to grow in beer so you know that that'll happen sometimes gotcha gotcha Um, gotcha. now that doesn't mean that like everything's perfect and dandy you want to get rid of it but um there's a there's other things like lactic acid producing bacteria that will sour your beer and that is something that is like giant red flag uh such as pediococcus which is Super, super, super small cell compared to a yeast cell. So, that stuff, as you can imagine, can just embed itself into everything in the brewing process. Um, And that can cripple a brewery, essentially. Wow.
0: Because it's just kind of, it becomes like a pandemic, like a bacteria pandemic in the brewery.
1: Yeah. And I mean, unless like, yeah, I mean, like most places, luckily, have checks in place and they're able to detect it uh, and narrow down. Uh, where it's coming from. But yeah, that's kind of, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on in beer.
0: Yeah, and like living stuff. And so but sometimes things can get out of control, I guess. So we've gotten this sense now that the quality control involves uh monitoring for bacterial growth. Are you also monitoring as part of a QC process? Literally things like flavor? Like do you taste things along the way to make sure the things are kind of coming along or what other kinds of quality control steps steps are there as you go through the process?
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, as we're about to talk about this project, you know, the most important thing is if it tastes good. (laughs) Because, you know, even if all your checks are perfect and you're hitting target and everything, uh, nothing weirds growing on plates. Your dissolved oxygen levels are great at canning. If it if the beer tastes like, (laughs) then you know it doesn't matter.
0: How oh, it looks on paper. <laughs> There's, it's completely bacteria-free. Enjoy <laughs> your beer. I, yeah, enjoy. I really, <laughs> who cares about the flavor? There's no bacteria. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So I'm starting to understand this a, a bit better. Starting to piece things together here. Hopefully for our listeners as well. Um, so when you're brewing beer, one of the key things that people hear about is ales versus lagers. I think the popular perception that people will say. I like lagers or I like ales. And I think that's because in the mass market, lagers are typically like relatively light colored beers. Uh, The one that I had, but have now finished, (laughs) uh, it was a lager. So it was that light color. People can go back to the beginning of the episode to see when I had a full glass. Um, And then ales, are often in on, on like grocery store shelves and in beer store shelves like a darker color and maybe they have a bit of a richer flavor a sweeter flavor. So I think people think in their heads that that's what the difference is, but my understanding and I've never brewed a beer in my life, but lager versus ale it's really just to do with one of them is top fermenting the other one's bottom fermenting and I can never remember which is which, but um, you could actually and correct me if I'm wrong, but can you basically get any kind of flavor out of a lager or an ale or you know these kinds of distinctions of lagers being light ales being dark that's kind of like an over that, that's an oversimplification right
1: i think it depends so you know you, your macro lager um super clean uh super light it, it's pretty much got like zero sugar left because the yeast have pretty much eaten everything because they added in it. let's these places these my, macro lagers which We make these style lagers too, based on one of these models I made, but I'll talk about that later. They're super clean, easy drinking, no phenolic off flavor, uh, no weird esters or flavors, super clean. And the reason they're clean is um, because of Saccharomyces pastorianus, And pastorianus is very efficient at um, fermenting at cold temperatures. And the reason Pastorianus is very good at fermenting cold temperatures is because you have Saccharomyces yabianus, so S-yabianus, and then you have Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is your ale strain. These two, at some point, they, um, they made a hybrid. So they, uh, they mated, and there, there mu- it must have been a really harsh environment, and then it sporulated. And they um, created this new offspring called Saccharomyces um, pastorianus. So pastorianus that everyone uses is actually a hybrid strain. So what it did is it got its cold fermenting um, tolerance from its eubionus parent, and then it got its maltose ferment, uh, maltotriose, uh, complex sugar, uh, ability to metabolize from its, uh, Cervaceae parent. You combine those two and you have a very efficient machine, uh, at low temperatures. Uh, and because it's at lower temperatures, it's going to be a lot cleaner, uh, not a ton of flavors and esters going on. I, I like to explain that, like the reason ales have more esters and flavors is it's kind of like an equivalent of if you're moving furniture and it's like 80 degrees or a hundred degrees in your house, you're going to be sweating a lot. <laughs> and the sweat, like the sweat, equi- <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the sweat equivalent is, um, like the esters and flavors.
0: Eager to learn about large language models and generative AI, but don't know where to start? Check out my comprehensive two-hour training, which is available in its entirety on YouTube. Yep, that means not only is it totally free, but it's ad-free as well. It's a pure educational resource. In the training, we introduce deep learning transformer architectures and how these enable the extraordinary capabilities of -of state-of-the-art LLMs. And it isn't just theory, my hands-on code demos, which feature the Hugging Face and PyTorch Lightning Python libraries, guide you through the entire life cycle of LLM development from training to real world deployment. Check out my generative AI with large language models, hands-on training today on YouTube. We've got a link for you in the show notes. Gotcha. 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 That's super interesting. Okay. So the lager, uh, yeast, uh, which, uh, you pronounced it there. I'm I'm not going to, I would just completely butcher it, but the the lager (laughs) yeast, um, uh, say it again.
1: Pastorianus. Pastorianus. Yeah.
0: It is able to ferment at very cold temperatures, uh, which using this analogy, this is actually, that's going to help me now remember, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that it's a really clean favorite because it's like you're, so using Fahrenheit, um, which half of our listeners are in the US, So that'll make sense to to half of our listeners, uh, at in Fahrenheit temperatures when it's uh, like 40 degrees, 50 degrees, it's a pretty cool day. Um, that's about uh, 5 degrees or 10 degrees Celsius. And at those kinds of temperatures, if you were to do a bunch of moving uh, moving furniture around from one apartment to another or whatever, you wouldn't get very sweaty. And so that's kind of what's happening with these uh, pastorialis, this uh, lager yeast. It's getting at low temperatures. It's able to do a lot of work efficiently, uh, converting the sugars in the wort into alcohol and into carbon dioxide, giving beer its alcohol and fizziness respectively. Um, And so yeah, so you're typically getting with lagers a nice clean flavor. Um, So yeah, so you're completely ruining my hypothesis around (laughs) lagers and ales not necessarily having um, different uh, kinds of flavors. But then ales on the other hand, it's like moving on a very hot day, moving the furniture on a hot day. So, you know, if you're talking about like an 80 or a hundred degree Fahrenheit day. That's like a 30 degree Celsius day. Uh, Very hot outside. You're getting really sweaty. So similarly, the yeast, they're just shedding all kinds of interesting flavors into the beer and giving meals, which I tend to prefer. uh, They're yummy flavors in my view. Mm.
1: Now, now think about this too. Um, When you're in a hotter environment, you're able to move around a little quicker. And get stuff done mm-hmm. faster. Mm-hmm. The joints Same are all thing. lubricated. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so loggers are a little slower in most cases than ales can be. And then you also have to think about okay, you know, just like humans, um, some humans are just predisposed to sweat more, even if it's like you know, one degree outside. You know what I mean? So, uh, some of these, some of these other strains. These cold tolerant strains will still impart esters and flavors reminiscent of um, an ale strain. So, Yubianus, which is the parent of Pastorianus, tends to have—they uh, call it phenolic off flavor—just um, because it's it naturally ex- expresses it due to its nature. So that's where it gets kind of confusing. Uh, I'm not going to like dive deep into this right now. <laughs> but yeah, so in, in a general idea, that's like the best metaphor I can really figure out for um yeah, the understanding yeah, yeah. of this.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I I've definitely learned a bunch there. I've been misinforming people <laughs> of <laughs> loggers and nails. Um and, but one of them is top fermenting and the other is bottom fermenting, right?
1: Yeah that the only like, I'm trying to think the only reason one is considered top fermenting is because the, there's a crossin. there's a really thick crossin in ales because all the, the, all the cells tend to, they're flying all over the place and it it tends to foam up at the top.
0: The cross and is like a foamy layer on the top of the, of the exactly. Yeah. And
1: that's all, that's mostly cells up there. Um, which is true um but lager strains they don't just like sit on the bottom um, um they're they're all over the place but they don't make like a big thick frozen like ales do
0: i see i see so it's like it's a visual thing so
1: exactly people yeah
0: call ales top fermenting because you're seeing all this on the top all these cells bouncing yep. around um, gotcha 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 but it's an oversimplification to call ales uh topering and lagers bottom fermenting. cool all right, so that is super helpful for me. So now let's start to get into this machine learning project. So um, at a high level, the idea that you had, so from your um, from your experience brewing at uh, prior to Species X, you have a data set of several hundred rows where every row represents a different beer where that beer, was uh went out to the public and the public tasted it so for each of those hundreds of rows you have a couple hundred well i don't know maybe not a couple hundred several dozen (laughs) columns (laughs) of information um and so and and those things relate to things like um what was the alcohol level which is kind of easy to understand um, so I'm looking at one of these spreadsheets right now and so yeah. there's, you know some some beers have as little as two percent some have seven percent some have ten percent um, but there's lots of other um, features in the data set related to ingredients that went in um, that things that relate to the process that was followed um, you know like like temperatures that were used um, ratios of different things to each other in the brewing process so it provides this really rich feature set for training a machine learning model. And then Bo, the really brilliant insight that you had was taking all of these features, which is already a rich proprietary data set. And the way that it's so well organized is mind blowing to me. It must have like a huge amount of work went into organize, organizing all these inputs into a machine learning model. But then in order to be able to use all of those inputs, you could use like an unsupervised machine learning approach that doesn't have labels And you could kind of like end up doing an exploratory analysis that would um, group related kinds of beers together based on these feature sets. But ideally, for brewing the most delicious beer possible, which is probably what a brewer is typically trying to do, it'd be great to have a label as to how delicious this beer is. And you obtained that. So you have this Outcome this label for all of these hundreds of rows that's based on consumer feedback. So it's a score um, A score rating and there's some it's a proprietary nature to this um, but uh, So I'm not going to go into too much detail this care, but it's a numeric score that um, Is consistent across all of these beers and so it allows you to have a rating of what people think Of the beer how delicious it is and so for these several hundred rows all representing beers you've got tons of rich features going in and you've got this outcome that you can predict with a supervised learning model and so you blended these these um, model inputs with this feature set and yeah you've been you've been training a machine learning model and one thing that i want to so i'd love for you to to dig a bit more into some of the key features Um, obviously we can't go into all of the dozens and to some extent you might want to keep some of it proprietary. But, you know, giving us a sense of what some of the key features are um, in the inputs to this machine learning model. But then the second thing is that I'd love for you, after you've explained the features, to talk about the machine learning process. And something that's really amazing for me is that we haven't talked about this since you and I have been in the conversation. I would have mentioned it Quickly in the episode's intro, but you don't come from a traditional kind of machine learning background. Uh, You know, you you weren't a statistician before, you weren't a computer scientist before. You were, I said, you were a football player. (laughs) You had (laughs) an opportunity to go pro um, and play for the Rams in the NFL. Uh, You come from a family of football players, so you know you played college football with your two brothers. Your dad was a professional football player for the Washington at the time, what they're called the Redskins uh, football club. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so you come from this football background. You studied psychology and sociology in college while you're playing football. And then you became a brewer uh, because of your passion for brewing. But I guess in recent years, because of your love of science, you became interested in AI and so you have been self-studying machine learning um, and you have obtained some credentials, but not like, you know, getting a degree. So you, you have yeah. a certificate in the practice of data and analytics from Ohio State University, which is cool. And I understand that you have more ambitions to study more. But the point that I'm getting to here, and I've been talking for a very long time, <laughs> but the point that I'm getting to is, and I hope this is inspiring for any of our listeners out there, if you are interested in using machine learning in some application area. So in Bo's case, he happens to be passionate about beer. And so he was like, how can I use machine learning and AI to brew better beer? And he went out, he started listening to this podcast, to the Super Data Science podcast. He started studying things online. And having reviewed your code and gone through your process with you, I can say it's amazing. It is as good as the professional data science work that I see on a day-to-day basis. And um, well, I can't wait to to find out how, how, what the results are like. But yeah, so there's, I've now talked for a very, very long time. I don't know if there's anything else about your background that you want to talk about, but uh, your background is something we'd love to hear about, the features that are going to this machine learning model, and then of course, talk about the machine learning model itself.
1: Okay, yeah, so um, when I first came up with this idea, I was like, man, this would be freaking awesome. Um I think this was uh when we start we started seeing Dolly come out and I was like I, ju- I just need to start like start this project up. So I started gathering my like all the proprietary data I had from uh burn recipes, my you know um for the past I think I've been I was doing it for about 7 years then Took me six months to clean all the data. Wow! So,
0: (laughs) I'm not. I'm not surprised. I'm not. That's something that. That's one of the things I didn't know that, but it's one of the things that blew my mind about this whole project. Was I was like, it's mind blowing to me that somebody had the foresight to be like, putting all these data together over the years in this structured way. But that wasn't the case. It was retrospective mostly. So I imagine now you do a better job of like, okay, we brewed a new beer. Let's get it into the right format into this into this data. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So that, that's actually why it's it's, it's funny because it's actually pretty similar to brewing in that, you know, it's like 80, 90 percent cleaning and then 10 percent is actually <laughs> executing, <laughs> like actually brewing, um, which is definitely like true when it comes to this. That's where the, like these two things definitely align. Well,
0: so when you're making beer, this isn't something I was aware of. So uh, our listeners who are data science practitioners will know that a huge amount of being a data scientist is cleaning the data um and actually training the models is typically a small part of the job but so when you say cleaning in a brewery like you literally mean like okay we finished brewing this beer you just need to spend tons and tons of time cleaning everything and getting it back as spick and span before you start over
1: yeah i mean um like the the tanks and stuff um right. the the ground the outside of the tanks um Wow! all those re- and now granted in a professional brewery it's a little easier but still it takes a lot of cleaning uh and maintenance wow. Wow. so um yeah majority of, of it is cleaning uh making ther- making sure everything's sanitary um that sort of thing so um yeah when, it, when i came up with the idea i it had to work with so when I was setting up the, the data column, the future columns, there actually is 180 columns total.
0: Okay, right. There. I had this I've idea in my head that it was like 200, but when I just was skimming yeah, it's over about, now, I was,
1: yeah. yeah, it's about 200. Um, but what I'll do is, I'll when we put guardrails up, we'll depending on which model we're using, uh, we'll shrink the data, the training data, or just keep it the same. If we're using Behemoth, which is the model with every single bit of our data or, you know, if we're doing Chris P is my, my logger model, (laughs) um, Chris P (laughs) will, will, you know, narrow down the rows. So it just includes loggers and then we'll um, shuffle around and delete out some of the, um, the, the feature columns so that it's all related to loggers only where in behemoth is behemoth is just like, okay how do i get from a to b to to the most customer satisfaction with no you know disregard to style or anything so that's what behemoth is um and usually what comes out the other end is you know like 10 to 15 percent alcohol beers um and um a lot of stout in- influenced beers but most of them are pretty off the wall crazy. Um, and we'll try to navigate it to the ones that are practical to brew. So the one from behemoth, for instance, that we'll be brewing here for the first time is a, I think it's a 10, eight and a half percent Baltic Porter, which is a lager. logger strain. Um, it's got like 20 different malts in it. um, there's like dashes of certain malts, which I find fascinating. There's like lactose, marshmallows, vanilla, three different types of fruit. Um, it's got a big whirlpool charge. Actually, just a, a little, a normal like whirlpool charge of pops, which is really fascinating. What,
0: what, is, what does that mean, whirlpool charge? Everything else kind of
1: made sense to me, but... Uh, the whirlpool charge is just like a... a uh, a dosing of hops in the whirlpool stage of the beer. So
0: yeah, and yeah, what's that? We'll um,
1: so we'll hook it up in the kettle and we'll circle it after it's done boiling. And at that point, you can actually cool the the wort down. So we'll cool it down to a, to a certain temperature, and then add hops if we need to. Usually, whirlpool charges happen for IPAs only. Um, so this is why it was fascinating to me that like a model like behemoth throws a completely novel way of brewing uh, a baltic porter especially uh, at me to brew and this is where I think like this is like really novel stuff like this some of these styles are they're not anything I've ever seen before, and as a A domain expert, I guess you could call me. Just from brewing for you know several years or seven, eight years now, um, I can look at a recipe that it generates and be like, "Wow, this actually, this is doable." And it sounds pretty nuts, but I want to brew it and see how how it goes. So, so there's that generative. I don't know. I would call it a generative. AI, but it's definitely supervised, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's definitely just, it's, supervised yeah, machine so learning.
0: It, yeah, it's but, uh, typically we would reserve generative AI for something that's like generating uh, like like tokens, like natural language or code or something. Uh, it's gotcha. typically what that means, but it is generative in the you know, broader sense, in the <laughs> sense of it is actually, it's helping you generate uh, new beer recipes. And I mean, and that is... That's a key part of your machine learning process. Here is that you, uh, you have a simulation stage. Yep. Where, and I guess that you know, I guess maybe you could kind of consider that generative. So there's there's a process. Yeah. In your algorithm, where um, you'll generate say ten thousand or a multiple of ten thousand um, random rows that are um, permutations of all of the relevant features. So, you know, I guess for behemoth, you have um, all all 180 features going to the model, and so your simulation stage is uh, is is creating 10,000 or more um, random permutations. But another really clever thing you did, and this leverages your domain expertise, is you set reasonable boundaries on those simulations. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it's kind of like what a Bayesian statistician does. So a Bayesian statistician will um, have these priors, um, around, um, parameters or, uh, in their model that kind of constrain how far a parameter can go away from, um, so you could have like a distribution that describes the probability of where, um, of where a parameter could be. And so that's similar to what you've done here with your simulation. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of jumping the gun here, but uh, you have the simulation stage, and then later you're able to use the supervised model to say, okay, with these 10,000 simulated recipes based on the constraints that you have, what is the likely rating that a user would have based on these inputs? Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know if I cut you off or if you want to get into a bit of the um, a bit of what that supervised learning model is like, because you've tried a, a bunch of different approaches. I think it would be kind of cool for us to. If I haven't interrupted you too much and I'm not changing the topic too much, it'd be cool to go into like the specific libraries that you used in order to create your supervised learning model.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, so uh, like Darwin, um, as the name suggests, uh, that's our fruited sour model. Darwin is completely, uh, it's all genetic algorithm. So it only uses genetic algorithm. So teapot is a really good way to, to utilize a genetic algorithm. And what it, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you might have come across genetic algorithms before. Yeah,
0: I mean, I can talk about it right? a bit if you'd like. So <laughs> um, the idea yeah, you know, with, with genetic algorithms is that you have, um, you, you start with um, a random starting point with a bunch of different um, models and then if and then you t- you see how they perform so you have this like random starting point for a bunch of different models and you see how they perform at the task that you'd like them to and you take the top performers similar to a way you might if you're trying to make a fast racehorse um or you're trying to make a yeast that ferments at a really low temperature um you might you'll you'll take from all of the possible species you can call these random starting point algorithm species and you take the ones that are great performers, so the like, just like the horses that are fastest, or the yeast that brews at the coldest temperatures. You'll take the, uh, in this case, the models that are best at uh, accurately predicting how people will rate a beer. And uh, so that's like your first generation. You've now taken these uh, these top performers. And you breed them together. (laughs) That's the key thing with these genetic algorithms is you you then say, okay, let's take two top-performing models from my first generation, blend them together in some way. So there's some attributes from one parent and some other attributes of the model from some other parent. And you blend them together to get the second generation. And some of those second generation ones, you're going to end up having blended the wrong parts of the parents together by chance. Because uh, it all happens by random assortative mating, just like in uh, in the real world where chromosomes are sliced and diced at random to create a child. Um, and so you're, you're going to get in that second generation some that perform about as well as the parents did in the first generation. Some are just going to completely bomb because they got the wrong parts <laughs> of, the, mm-hmm. of the model process from their parents. But some of them are going to outperform because they happen to get the really good stuff that their their parent one had and the really good stuff the parent two had and they blend together and they're they're, and so in that uh, the second generation is going to result in some child models that are better performers than anyone um, in the second generation and then we just repeat this process over and over so you take just like breeding horses or making big apples (laughs) or um, or having cold fermenting yeast you're picking the ones that are the best from each generation um, mating them together And yeah, so that's cool. So you have, so you call your, your, uh, genetic algorithm Darwin and the key thing here, I think one of the key takeaways other than in general, how evolutionary algorithms work is, uh, your recommendation to use the teapot library, which I presume is a Python library.
1: Yeah, it's a Python library. It's actually, it pretty much sets it up for you. Just lays it up. Um, (laughs) so all you really have to do is define, um, the teapot algorithm. Uh, your training data, and then your parameters are really easy to find or to to, uh, adjust on the fly. So if you want a different, if you want to mess around with your offspring or a number of, um, I think it's mutation rate, um, you can definitely do that. And I found for Teapot specifically, that genetic algorithm, it has a really solid, uh, like, default set of parameters that that um we're good out the gate so you know if, if people are uh interested in it in genetic algorithms and they don't have a ton of experience like i do um it is definitely cool to to learn from and and utilize uh G-Pod.
0: nice very cool yeah i've actually never used an evolutionary algorithm uh, on a project so it's cool that you that you got to do that um and then you also, I think you made extensive use of the Pycaret library, if i if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, I use Pycaret. I use H two H two O AutoML um, as well. For this is just for exploratory. So uh, I use Pycaret and some other AutoML just to like find a base, some base models. So just to get. Um, an understanding of uh, you know what what works best on these uh, on the on this training data. Every now, I mean, most of them seem to be actually I've been I getting you know a, a lot of them I've been getting boosted trees. So I'll I'll take a look at that. And um, for instance, if it's a boosted tree that comes out on the other end as the best score, I will I will take that and then run a separate uh, model on that specifically to uh, do a grid search and find the optimal parameters that way as well. So I'll brute force it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So to to break this down a little bit, so you use tools, AutoML tools like PyCaret and H2O, both of which I will put in the show notes to allow you to identify models that might be useful for say, uh, you know whether it's Behemoth or Crispy. <laughs> so Behemoth working across all of your features or Crispy um, working with a subset that are relevant only to loggers. And also the data set size is being quite different there. So Behemoth, there's a there's a lot more rows to work with, whereas Crispy yeah. is only working with a logger data, which turned out to be a relatively small proportion. Um, and something that I was kind of like, I was like, I don't really like IPAs. And you're like, well, dude, almost all of the beers that we have are IPAs. <laughs> um, so we're gonna have to um, reduce down the data set quite a bit and so you end up in those different scenarios different kinds of models are going to end up being great but we don't we don't know typically um as the human you know in this particular scenario okay if i've got the logger situation with a much smaller number of rows of data and a somewhat smaller number of columns of data you know, for these for this particular circumstance, does that mean I should be using the same model as I was for Behemoth? And maybe you could spend a lot of time messing around with different kinds of models to figure out what what the best approach is for Behemoth in the first place. So to sidestep all of that, you quite cleverly used AutoML packages like PyCaret and H2O in order to be able to um, to home in on what a great modeling approach would be. And as you're saying there, boosted trees ended up often being um, the approach, which isn't surprising. People who know from data science competitions like Kaggle, um, these kinds of um, boosted tree approaches like XGBoost um, end up often being uh, top performers. And uh, it looks like from your code that you're typically using scikit-learn as your um, tree's uh, as, as the library for finding your, for, for finding a trees module.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely use scikit-learn quite a bit. <laughs> I, I don't know. Every now and then we'll come across some random one that scores really well, despite like using H2O and high carrot, but they'll both score some off the wall uh, algorithm that I haven't seen before or heard of before, like OMP, which OMP, I, it's a uh, greedy al- algorithm. I forget exactly what it's, it stands for, but I, I thought it was a fascinating algorithm. But every now and then, yeah, you get some wild algorithms. I'm also, what I do sometimes is, okay, so I'll do the auto ML run. I'd be like, okay, uh, for instance, XGBoost did great on this. So we'll move it to the brute force method and use grid search. And then I'll experiment and ensemble that with something else. So one that I've really enjoyed using a lot is TabPFN, which is a neural network, which is pre-trained on tabular data. If I'm, mis- if I'm correct, I, yeah, I yeah, might yeah. be saying you are that correct. Wrong, You are correct, but, absolutely.
0: Okay. Yeah, I looked into this when you first mentioned it to me because I had not heard of TabPFN before. But TabPFN, so typically... Neural networks are not good at working with tabular data. And in Uh fact, up until you mentioned this, I was not aware of people using neural networks, the deep learning, for for tackling uh, tabular data problems. So um, deep learning, I mean, I wrote the book, Deep Learning Illustrated, and I've taught deep learning tons of times. And I had students who regularly, as I was teaching deep learning courses, intro to deep learning courses they would be interested in tabular applications and I'd be like, yeah, maybe this is, <laughs> you know, maybe you, know, <laughs> yeah. you can give it a shot, but it's probably not going to be very fruitful. You know, you're probably yeah. better off using decision trees, for example, um, a boosted tree approach like like XGBoost instead. Um, but uh, d- yeah, so deep learning is, t- is usually better for um, pattern recognition where there's a lot of structure um, in 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 the data patterns that can be learned kind of spatially in a way. So it's easiest to understand with machine vision problems. So when your inputs are images or video, there's a lot of spatial patterns that deep learning algorithms are adept at uh, being able to uh, tease out what the most important signal is from amongst all of that noise going into the model. And a similar kind of thing ends up happening with um, natural language processing, which deep learning has also proved, as we can see with the large language models that use deep learning under the hood. Um, um, well, that, that are, <laughs> it's not even under the hood. Fundamentally, large language models are deep learning networks. And so in either, yeah, so in, in, in with natural language processing, with machine vision, um, we see amazing, powerful, real-world applications in machine vision and in generative AI, uh, for example. Um, but tabular data, where the rows are... Typically, you know, they're not necessarily related to each other in the way that the pixels in an image are or the words in natural language are. And so, um, yeah, up until you mentioned TabPFN to me, I wasn't aware that somebody had come up with a way of doing neural networks effectively um, on tabular data. So it's really cool that you found that. I'm really glad you brought it up. And yeah, you probably have more
1: to add. Yeah, I, I love TabPFN. Um, it's limited, so... Uh, limit it's limited on the number of uh, future columns you have, um, as well as rows. But uh, so is my data. You know what I mean? My my training data is not <laughs> massive, um, so it it's actually great at ensembling with other um, algorithms to either to to kind of hone them in to be more accurate. Um, I have found so that. Uh, as in an ensemble has been um pretty eye opening. and the fact that it's like instant um PFN is like literally takes like half a second <laughs> to train and then, yeah, and to um and to make an inference it, it's it's super fast, uh, mind blowing mind blowingly fast
0: yeah I, I I guess with yeah, with a relatively small amount of data points that you have. It's not like with the other approaches, like when you're talking about doing the boosted trees and particularly having using the grid search CV method um, yeah. out of the model selection module of scikit-learn. When you do a kind of grid search like that, you're going to be running so many different models. It's going to take a long time. The cool thing about deep learning and part of what makes it so powerful is that it 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 allows for features to interact with each other in all kinds of crazy nonlinear ways. And so it's kind of like you're doing, it's like you're running lots of experiments on, especially how nonlinearities and interactions um, relate to your outcome in a deep learning model. So um, it's it's cool to hear that it's um, so efficient um, on the relatively small amount of data in Tappy event, and it doesn't surprise me that that's the case. Yep. Very cool, yeah, so I hope that that gives our listeners, obviously we, you know, it's not like we can share Jupyter Notebooks with people, unfortunately, <laughs> or go into too much more detail on what you're doing because otherwise you'd be giving away the secret sauce. But, um, you know, some really great pointers here, general kind of machine learning ideas, um, Teapot for evolutionary models, Carrot and H2O for AutoML, Scikit-learn for a lot of your machine learning implementations, including, as you mentioned, Boosted Trees, I know also that sometimes k-nearest neighbors algorithms did come up as a top model in some of your situations. And TabPFN, super cool recommendation for um, fitting deep learning models to tabular data. So I'll be sure to include links to all of those Python software libraries in the show notes, and all of them are open source. Um, so you, know, you can pick them up right today and, and start playing around with them
1: so another one is called lazy predict it's a it's an amazing uh python library and this goes along the same toolage of uh pi and h2o in order to find uh, like a a base algor- high scoring base algorithm to work with um and it'll list them out and uh show you the top scores. And usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll run, you know, two or three um, of these AutoML algorithm search utilities and, or, or libraries. And I'll usually run uh, those side by side to see, okay, this is actually legit. Um, I should be doing, you know, XGBoost or I should be doing ADA, or linear regression even though i've never <laughs> seen linear regression pop up ever but um who knows um so anyways
0: very cool and so yeah so in some of our so you and i have had a few meetings and so we were like okay let's let's brew um you know like i, I agreed agree to help out and uh you know give you a bit of feedback on what you've been doing the the great Uh, impressive work you've been doing um, on your data collection and your modeling. And so we were like, okay, so we're going to have this collaboration beer. And as I already mentioned, I was like, I don't really like IPAs typically, so let's remove them from the data. And so you've been working on a logger. Um, So we reduced the data down to uh, just the loggers that were in the data set. And you trained uh, so you use these auto ML processes to identify crisp P <laughs> your, <laughs> uh, your logger only model uh, supervised learning model for predicting um, how people would probably taste um, one of your tens of thousands of simulated uh, recipes. And um, yeah, so how's that, how's that coming along? Where are you at the time of recording? Where is is the beer, and I guess I guess we can tell people the name of the beer.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Um, so I tasted this beer yesterday for the first time, and out of all the lagers I've ever made, it it's up there. It, it might be the best, like the best logger. Wow, I've
0: ever made. that's <laughs> unreal! Wow, that's so I'm so happy to hear it. I was like, I was worried that we'd get on air. Um, do all this rigmarole, and then you'd be like oh, we gotta go <laughs> back to the drawing board <laughs> um, we should have been using K nearest neighbors instead of boosted trees after all why did I <laughs> ensemble tab Tfn. Um because because yeah because you let's we can talk about this in a bit more detail when uh, when you and I were looking over the results um, that came out of your proprietary um, supervised learning process Um so you had these tens of thousands of rows simulated using the the, the parameter constraints that you had on inputs, mm-hmm. and then you you had your crisp P supervised learning model go over all of those ten thousand simulated rows and predict what people would rate. One of those came out by some margin at the very top, and that's this beer that you've been brewing. But there were some things about the features in it that, as I was, I was you know, to me, it doesn't mean anything. When I'm looking at the inputs into your model, like most of them don't make any sense to me. I'm like, okay, I get like the alcohol content.
1: <laughs> like
0: that one makes sense to me. And I can kind of like, I through going over your, your sheet a few times, like I've learned, okay, like these are, these are the hops and like, this is the massive hops and this is, but like that doesn't mean anything to me. Like I can't infer how that could possibly relate to the way that a beer tastes. But so as you were reviewing This lager that came out number one um, by far in terms of how consumers are predicted to rate it. um, You saw some unusual things. Your eyes kind of lit up. What are those kinds of things that you saw?
1: Well, the the main thing was Maris Otter. It it called for, um, which is really fascinating because uh, a majority of uh, loggers do not use Maris Otter. That's mostly bound to stouts and pale ales and IPAs. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, not too crazy, but I, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, there was a really, again, um, a really large hop addition, in, uh, l- large for a, a lager, um, a large hop addition in the Whirlpool. Not a ton of hops in the, in the kettle and um, no dry hopping. And in addition to that, there was also it called for it called for sugar as well. Um, A very certain type of sugar, which was called uh, it's a D45 candy syrup. So we threw that in as well. Um, And I I forget what else. Um, I'll have to take a look at that later. But um, (laughs) I think there there was other there's different types of malt in there. Nothing too crazy, but I think there was, I think there was wheat in there as well. So, anyways, as I'm brewing this and throwing candy syrup in it and doing the weird whirlpool charge, I was like, this is so bizarre, but in a really cool way. I feel like there's like an alien telling me what to do. <laughs> um, and it makes sense. Like, uh, it's just, it, I, I just know that like a person would never suggest brewing this <laughs> like usually um but it it's coming out amazing um it it's just it's so unbelievably smooth um really light uh and has knife knife uh, a nice um like depth of character and flavor um but and it's it just as I said, super clean, easy to drink. so um we'll we'll go ahead. It's about done fermentation, so it'll be conditioning for um, a couple of weeks, probably before we we tap it um, and and package it. so Amazing. I'm super excited. I'm super excited about it.
0: I, I've had an ear to ear smile as you've been describing this. <laughs> it's it's been such a wild process. It's quite different. It's completely different from any kind of um project that I've ever been associated with and and I I played an extremely small part in this this is really uh your project you've done all the hard work on this and it's fantastic to see uh what's come out but to th- that particular thing that you're describing there and I think that shows the real value in what you're doing at species x at least on the silicon side of things with these silicon species it's just like you're saying like an alien directing you what to do and so you know you you've spent years now Uh, particularly quite a bit of time over the last year though you know that doesn't include all the time you spent um getting the data together but uh you know you've invested years in aggregate into data collection modeling and also just training yourself on the side and and for that to come together and produce this result which i guess we still don't we still haven't had the final uh taste but it's come along now that that you have a pretty good sense of it. Um, for me, the the two most exciting points in this whole process were going over this top-rated result that came out of your crisp P model. The 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 beer that it selected, seeing your eyes light up as you talked about things like the Maris Otter, um, which is a particular kind of barley malt, um, yeah, and as you say, like a flavor that people wouldn't think to typically put in a lager combined with things like this the specific syrup that you mentioned. Lots of hops added at the whirlpool stage, which I was like, oh man, like I don't like IPAs. And now you're at it, now the algorithm suggested all these hops, it ruined everything after all. And you're like, no, it's okay, because at the whirlpool stage, lots of hops, they won't um, they won't create too much bitterness in the flavor, like like they would if they were um, added earlier on in the process. And so I was like, okay, cool, like, you know, let's go for it. This sounds like a beer based on what you're describing that I would like. And um it sounds. It sounds, So that that was one really exciting stage in this, and then the, the second really exciting stage is right now, <laughs> to be to be able to hear that it, that it's working out because you don't know for sure with machine learning models, and and most uh, historically for me, in fact, maybe a hundred percent of the time with any other machine learning model I've ever been involved with in uh, more than fifteen years of working on commercial machine learning projects, all the other times I can. I can know what the results are going to be like right away. I can see them on my screen. Does this work or does it not work? But with what you've done, it it was going to be a couple of months from like, okay, this is the recipe it suggested. It's like a marionette to bow, like an alien telling you what to do as you go through um, creating this beer. And you don't really know how it's going to turn out until the end. And so for it to be seeming like it's going to work out is super exciting, um, and so it's. Uh, it sounds like February 8th in Columbus, Ohio at the Species X Brewery. If, if we have listeners in Columbus, Ohio, actually I do know that we have some Columbus, Ohio listeners and I'll be reaching out to friends that I have in the city um, and some friends may even come from far and wide uh, of mine to come on February 8th and try out this Maris Otter Lager that uh, your Chris P. Algorithm has suggested can we tell people the expected name
1: of the Oh, place? yeah, it's uh, it's called Borg. If you want to <laughs> go into depth on that.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, this is actually a hat tip to my sister, Stevie, for coming up with this idea. So um, there is, of course, um, a very famous French um, beer called Kronenberg uh, out of a city called Kronenberg. Um, and so it's a very popular lager, particularly in Europe, but you see it on a lot of taps in the U S as well. It's a pretty common kind of like you'll see it alongside Stella's and Heineken's. Uh, so yeah, get your Cronenberg beer. And then, so the idea here is, uh, it, it takes advantage of my last name, Krone. It helps people nudge them in the direction of pronouncing it properly, which is nice for me. <laughs> um, uh, so, and then it also adds in, if people are familiar with Star Trek, the Borg are these robots that become um a big a big problem um in the star trek series specifically like the one that i grew up on star trek the next generation in the 90s they're kind of like the arch nemesis um to jean Luc picard and uh the star trek so and the robots so it's this idea of ai uh blended with humans crone and borg uh and kind of rolls off the tongue i wanted to call it and borg 2064 to play on the, they call it cronenberg's uh, 1664 <laughs> for their logger. But <laughs> your marketing team said that that might be cutting it too close.
1: Yeah, uh, it might be a little be, too, <laughs> too close.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Treading on trademark issues. Um, but that uh, would have been a funny thing. Uh, but yeah, Krohn and Borg. Um, I'm so excited, uh, Beau, for February 8th uh, to come out to Columbus and try it out. Um, and we will also be, I'll be recording a, a, a shorter episode, probably a Friday episode um, while I'm there, um, you know, getting some feedback <laughs> on, on the beer and answering maybe people's data science questions together um, to, yeah, to, to round out. So so there will be an episode coming in the future um, on, yeah, how the Cronenborg uh, beer turned out from this amazing project that I am so grateful you invited me to play a small part in. Thanks, a lot, Bo.
1: Yeah, I I appreciate you to take the time um, to collaborate on this. It, it means a lot. Um, and to I like you mentioned, I, I'm pretty I'm mostly self-taught in this. You know, I have a little bit of um, formal education from OSU, but nothing super complex and over the top. So having you to come in and validate that what I was doing was, you know, the correct way to do things and uh, making amazing suge- suggestions into into future, possible future iterations was really helpful. So I'll always be grateful for, for you know, your time.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. And I'm definitely down for more of these. It's very exciting for me. It's, uh, I mean, I'm passionate about beer. I love it very much. Uh, it's so... <laughs> Uh, there are a few things I like more in life than beer. It's a funny thing. Like people will be like getting really fancy bottles of wine or whatever at dinner. And I'm like, like just pour me like a little taste. Cause you're wasting that expensive wine on me. Just get me a beer. <laughs> um, no, that's it. I am, I can be a bit of a beer snob. Um, but, um, yeah, super, super honored to be, to be part of this bow. And I'm glad that it seems to be working out so far. Um, I was, you know, up until today, I didn't know how this was actually going to turn out potentially in terms of flavor. We still don't know for sure, but I was, I, I was just like, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to get my hopes up. Um, I knew that there was a chance, you know, this is an experiment. And so I guess I still know that there's, there's a chance that it it could fall down, but I was, but it seems like things are coming together. And so I've been kind of like holding my breath uh, to find this out. So it's a really exciting day for me. I'm going to be, I'm going to be over the moon for a while for sure. Um, one last final thing before we start wrapping up this episode, because you had an interesting insight for me before we started recording and it shows how far, how deep you get in the weeds, um, on anything that you're thinking about is you had an interesting parallel between, uh, we talked about how, when you were a college football player, you were also studying, um, psychology and sociology at Virginia tech. Um, and you made an interesting parallel before we started recording to, the large language models
1: like Gpt4 that we have today yeah so um this actually relates back to the the project that we're doing here too I I've been using an agent uh, open source code um, that will go out and do research um, utilizing clod or Gpt4 or, um, you know one one of the big ones
0: that's a that's an open source agent
1: yeah it's um baby AGI Baby AGI, yeah. So that's a good. Exa- it's a. It's an iterate. It's like ripped off of it. So it's not exactly baby AGI. It's my own um, repository that we use here in house. at Spe- species X. Oh, oh, cool. But um, I can't like open source it just because uh, there's a lot of proprietary information inside of that repository. So. Um, yeah, it's definitely a riff off of that. Um, there's a lot of, in, in addition to changes on the actual Baby AGI code, there's also um, a lot of prompt engineering, and um, I can't—I still can't believe I'm saying the word prompt—prompt prompt engineering, but uh, it's definitely a thing now. <laughs> it's just crazy to me. Um, so there, there's a. Uh, so what the goal of the agent is to go out. It, it's given a goal. It goes out, uh, does research on the top beers, and then it'll create a brand new recipe. And then it will go ingredient by ingredient, improving the recipe um, at each stage. So it'll keep going until you just tell it to stop. But yeah, we. And then in addition to that, it'll explain. It'll tell me its name. And then it also prompts me with an image of itself to put into a uh, image generator. (laughs) So, um, so going off that, that's you'll see on the website, it says various agents. That's what um, we're talking about there. Um, We'll eventually I I have to figure out how I'm going to release one of those agent peers, but um, in there you can see um, even in the baby AGI, um, Repository code, uh, it'll say you know temperature, and you can mess with the temperature in there. I've noticed when you up the temperature of the model, it tends to do some pretty crazy stuff.
0: Yeah, and so, and so to so to so to dig into this, this is um, when you have a large language model. There's a key hyperparameter, so a key um, attribute that you can adjust called temperature. And uh, I guess it actually, in a way, we can bring this analogy back to your sweaty, sweaty yeast thing <laughs> uh, because oh, yeah. it's kind of like you know when you have cold water uh, that you're that you're brewing in, the reactions are slower, more predictable, uh, and when you're doing the reactions like you might with an ale um, in a warmer temperature, the action proceeds more quickly, but it's more sporadic. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's kind of, it's similar with temperature as well. So actually, if you, if you turn the temperature on a large language model all the way down to zero, you will end up with, um, a totally, um, uh, a totally unstochastic model, uh, determ- it'll be a deterministic model where every time you run it, you'll get the exact same output. So it's just predicting the most likely, uh, generative sequence, whether that's, um, an image or. Text or code or whatever you have your generative AI model doing, whatever you have your large language model doing, it um, is you turn the temperature up, um, it will it will have more random outputs. Uh, so it will explore, you know, you, so you'd end up with more creative images um, or more creative, more random stories. And yeah, so that relates, Bo, too.
1: Yeah. So when I was when I was studying psychology. Um you know you, you talk about how as a person gets more when their schizophrenia really starts to develop um you can actually see this in artists too um that are developing schizophrenia, you know at first, their drawings will be very you know they'll look like very realistic or like photorealistic in some cases they look normal essentially um But as the schizophrenia develops, uh, you'll see like a lot more colors and more like subjective shapes and stuff, more abstract until eventually it's completely unrecognizable. And it's just all colors on a piece of paper and no shapes, no nothing. So like one example I saw was a person was drawing a cat and they were really good at drawing cats. And then eventually like the, cat forms start to go away until it's just like blobs of color. And going back to the LLM reference, um, I noticed when I up the temperature on it, um, it, it would like talk to itself. So it would be like, it would have conversations with itself and none of it made any sense. Like a word, word salad is what people call it. So it would just, like, you know, chirp off and start making absolutely no sense whatsoever. I was like, gosh, this reminds me of, like, schizophrenia. Like, um, it's just, like, strikingly similar to, like, the development of schizophrenia. If you have a temperature on zero, like you were saying, um, very proper, you know what I mean? Um, Very, um, you know, will not you know, do anything too crazy. But as you up the temperature, that cat, as a, you know, referencing back to the cat drawing, the cat drawings just got crazier and crazier and crazier till so it's unrecognizable and makes no sense.
0: Yeah. So it's an interesting uh, analogy. Um, and yeah, I mean, at, at a surface level, we certainly not psychiatrists or experts, um, in in schizophrenia in any way, but uh, from the abnormal psychology courses that I took as an undergrad studying neuroscience, I I can see the parallels that you're making, and, and it's an interesting and maybe it's it's an interesting parallel. And um, I wonder if somehow there is something useful there for uh, schizophrenia researchers. I don't know. There may or may not be. Might uh, not I, I don't, like the way that we have animal models of diseases. Um, so. You know, we'll use mice uh, in particular, or sometimes rats as um, animal models of different um, diseases, including uh, psychiatric diseases. And so I wonder if someday we'll have machines that can substitute and maybe even be a better substitute, because obviously mice don't have language, for example. But um, yeah, I wonder if there's people out there working on these kinds of application areas where you can have an LLM that models schizophrenia and somehow, you know, that provides some insight, um, into the actual biological disease itself. So, yeah, interesting ideas there, Bo. Um, thank you so much for this fascinating episode. Um, I hope our audience has enjoyed learning about beer and about how, um, anybody can be training themselves to take advantage of machine learning and AI open source tools that are out there. Um, learning opportunities that are out there that are that are available for free online and yeah so you can uh, leverage your domain expertise to create some really cool ai projects like you're doing at species x and yeah hopefully we're going to find in a couple of weeks that cronenborg is a delicious beer and that this project was a success Um, i'm super excited about it um been a, a great day for me already hearing hearing this positive news um beau as a regular listener to the program you will be aware that I can't let you go without a book recommendation.
1: Yes. So I, I love space too. In addition to this, one of my favorite books I've read recently was operation hail mail, hail Mary. I won't go into, I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but it involves space, <laughs> microbiology <laughs> and saving the world. And okay. it's, it, it's amazing. It, it's a, it's a fiction book, but yeah, it, it's one of my favorite books I've, I've read in, in a while. I think they're making a new, they're making a movie with Ryan Gosling starring it. So oh, really? that's something else. To, yeah, that's be big. something to keep your eyes at, uh,
0: out for. Awesome. All right. And Bo, so how should people follow you? Obviously I'll include a link to speciesxbeer.com in the show notes. Uh, where else should people
1: connect with you? Um, I'm really active on Instagram. So, spe- at species, species X beer, uh, that's the same handle for all of our social media. So, active on Instagram, very active on Threads. I'm here and there on Twitter, and then Facebook as well. But mostly Threads and um, and Instagram. We're going to be you'll be able to find us. So,
0: well, wow, well, you get a prize for being the first guest to ever say that they actually use Threads. Um, <laughs> really? <but> yeah. <laughs> I've had people, especially when Threads first came out, they were like, "I've created a Threads account," but yeah, you're the first one to actually see that they're using it, so that's cool. It's nice to know. Now, I don't have
1: like, <laughs> I don't have like a ton of followers on there, but um, yeah, <laughs> I I, I, uh, I post there pr- uh, pretty frequently, and I don't know, I, I have more followers on there than uh, Twitter Twitter slash X, um, so nice. we're I'm just trying to um, nice
0: all right well all of our uh, (laughs) all of our many threads threads uh, (laughs) listeners to the podcast they will be they'll be checking that out uh, right away Um, thank you so much for taking all the time today and I'm looking forward to catching up with you in Columbus
1: on February 8th thanks for having me John I appreciate it
0: Well, I'm super, super excited to try the Krohn & Borg Maris Otter Lager in a few days. Wow. Unreal to hear that Bo's AI beer project is likely to work out on the very first attempt. In today's episode, Bo filled us in on how sweaty ales have more flavor and efficiency than cleaner fermenting loggers. How he painstakingly curated nearly 200 feature columns for 300 beers over six months. How he used the Pycaret, H2O, and LazyPredict autoML libraries, as well as the Teapot genetic programming library in Python, for homing in on great models for his beer rating predictors. How he used scikit extensively throughout his work, particularly the grid search CV method for finding optimal model hyperparameters how he ensembled more traditional ML models like boosted trees with TAB PFN deep learning models to get even better results, and how you can join us in person at Species X Brewing in Columbus, Ohio on Friday to taste the resulting Kronenborg beer that emerged from these years of um, AI R&D effort from Bo. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Bo's social media profiles, as well as my own, at superdatascience.com 755. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another delicious episode for us today for enabling that super team to create this free podcast for you. We are of course so deeply grateful to our sponsors. You can support this show by checking out our sponsors links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johnkrone.com slash podcast. Otherwise, please do share, please review, please subscribe and all those good things that help us get the word out there about the show. But most importantly, just keep on tuning in. I'm so grateful to have you listening and I hope I can continue to make episodes you love for years and years to come. Until next time, keep on rocking it out there and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very
1: soon.